Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Congratulations. Oh, uh, is this a Mother's Day thing? Oh, no, but I, uh, oh. happy Mother's Day also. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah, ha- happy Mother's Day to your mom, who I know doesn't listen that often, but if she listens now, <laughs> hey. She's not going to hear that, but I'll tell her you no. said that. <laughs> no, no, I heard you won a national newspaper award. <laughs> oh you did God. right i they gave out a national newspaper uh, award for people who were like tracking uh the the higher deaths in long-term care and that is you mm-hmm. so congratulations mm-hmm. yeah I, I think the actual way that the national newspaper award said that uh this team uncovered the fact that people were dying more often in private homes than in public homes in ontario amazing you're a team <sighs> yeah Ooh. I'm a team of five uh, of four guys at the Toronto Star <laughs> who all kind of look the same. That's incredible, isn't it? I when I saw that news, I just uh, sat there and shook my head because, um, you know, we haven't done uh, too much analysis of uh, how the the media has really shut you out since Humboldt, since you called out um, the white supremacy in the way that the Humboldt tragedy was being um, covered and discussed. Uh, but, but this is, this is part of it. You know, the, you, this is part of how white supremacy operates is if you are someone who calls it out, you could, um, you know, have history and not, not far off history fully rewritten um, in mm-hmm. that, you know, Nora, Nora has been, you know, and for, for a time was the only person in Canada doing this type of counting and an award has just been delivered to three, three white men for the work, four, 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 four white men <laughs> for the work that Nora was doing. And it's just yeah, unconscionable, but you should, you should have gotten that recognition. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to say that. So <laughs> you know, uh, it's, 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 it's amazing work what you've been doing every night. It's hard work. It's death work is always hard work. It's depressing work and there should be some recognition for it. And, you know, at, at least people recognize that there should be recognition. It's going to the wrong place, obviously, but, um, you know, you should be commended for that work that you've been doing. Thanks. Um, I guess there's a couple of things to say on that. The first thing is that it is really awesome that the Toronto Star's announcement that they won this award got ratioed because of me. (laughs) (laughs) It was the the outpouring of support has been really wonderful. So I want to make sure that people, um, if you don't really know what we're talking about, there have been a lot of people online who've been calling out this award and and saying like, what the hell? Like, you know, Nora Loretto has been doing this work as well. And so I really, really appreciate that report, um, that support it's it's really funny because um like the guys who did the reporting for the Toronto Star I don't think they have any idea why they're being called out because you know a lot of people have said you plagiarized Nora's work and you know it's it's not plagiarism they 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 got their own numbers from the ministry the, the numbers in Ontario are mostly public what's so frustrating to me is that the Toronto Star not just these four men uh but across the board has consistently 
defaulted to just using the ministry's numbers. And so the, the ministry says this number of people died here, this number of people died here, this number of people died here. And then for a, a large chunk, uh, some number between one and five people or one in four people died in these places because they won't specify under five. And the work that I've been doing has actually been to fill in those gaps so that we are not just relying on ministry data. We are actually able to understand how many more people probably died from COVID in in places where we can verify that. And, you know... Like I know, like one of the one of these people has been in touch with me before. Or I've been in touch with him um, maybe once or twice over the last year. Uh, I know that one of them, and like he doesn't know who I am, so he doesn't listen to the fucking podcast. But someone sent me some screen caps of a conversation they had with him, and um, he he's like, uh, yeah, I don't know who she is. <laughs> wow. And it's like, guy, you're re- like you're the social justice reporter of the Toronto Star. How do you not know who the fuck I am? Like, I'm not like that important. But if you've done this research into long term care, you didn't just stumble across my name. You didn't stumble across my research. Like, you are telling on yourself, and that's a really weird defense. So um, I won't say who that, which one of them that was. But um, as I say, he doesn't listen to the podcast, so <laughs> I can say whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the the final thing I'll say just on this issue is, you know, Sandy, you said that death work is difficult. And as the third wave has just ravaged so many parts of this country, the at the same time as vaccines have helped to keep the infections and deaths within residential care to be quite low. You know, I've gone from logging dozens and dozens of death every night to like under 10, you know, under seven, really. Um, but what I've had to start doing is crawling through GoFundMe to see who is fundraising on the behalf of someone who's passed away because of COVID and to see in the description of the GoFundMe if it explains where they worked and if they got COVID on the job. Wow. And I have to say, it's really sad to go through GoFundMe every single night. Oh my God. Yeah, that's awful. That is awful. Yeah. And and so, you know, the, the thing about GoFundMe is, of course, I mean, I'm looking at memorials. Um, most people did not die of COVID who are in these pages. And uh, the what what does continuously come back is just how many young people have died from poison drugs like that. That's the majority of what we see. Poison drugs, car accidents, ATV accidents, workplace accidents. It's really sad. And it's it's just a way to look at all of the problems within society and the, the acute impact they have on, on killing people who tend to be younger. Like lots of times GoFundMe's are, are, are created because someone doesn't have money for a funeral or because a body needs to be sent back to another country because there's an international student who was here who died by themselves. And um, and yeah, it's it's been really sad. It's been a really difficult couple of weeks doing this work. And I don't encourage people to necessarily do that, to look at the GoFundMes to see where people are dying. But certainly keep in mind that every time that there's an announcement that someone has died in a car accident or from a drug overdose, like these are all public policy decisions and their lives did not need to end. And we need to fight for them and to fight to make sure that people don't die in these ways if we can, if we can stop it going forward. So that's kind of where I'm at with this with this data collection. And so, yeah, to not win that award was... I mean, I, I would never have won the award, but to to see someone else win it for the work that I've been doing has been um, kind of kind of brutal. But hey, but Sandy, uh, Sandy Nora also got shut out of awards. Oh yeah, you mean the the 
pod, Canadian Podcasting Awards or whatever it is. Yeah, what the fuck is that? I mean, I don't know. It's it. it you and I both know that uh, the type of work that we do in the way that we do it is often not a work that is rewarded and or awarded, and so. Um, no surprise there. Thank you to the people who did point it out though, and, uh, pointed it out with their frustration. Um, this is, you know, this is par for the course and I feel, uh, so much more grateful uh, to all of the people who, um, who support us like that to me is more of an, a ward reward <laughs> i'm like now playing around with these two words in my head um uh is more of a reward than than you know like this canadian podcasting award so i'm grateful to all the people who um who have been calling out this kind of shutting outness that's happening but uh, uh i'm sure we should be grateful for other reasons nora do we have some people to thank yes Yes. Yeah. And so rather than us being able to say, hey, we've got these awards and thank you for nominating us, we're going to say thank you to these award winning supporters of, of Sandy and Nora. Uh, we, we appreciate you. We appreciate everybody that, that donates to the podcast, whether that's through financial means or through just word of mouth and sharing this with your friends. And so this week, I would like to say thank you so much to Chris, Daniel, Anna, a different Anna, Sonia, Gregory, Nolan, Connor, Caitlin, Veronique, and Kelvin. Thank you so, so much for your support. Thank you. Okay, so Nora, let's do something totally new and talk about the pandemic again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you know, Sandy, that this is our 150th episode? No, I didn't. Have we been that consistent? Wow, I'm mm-hmm. proud of this. Yes. So I, <laughs> I think that it would I think it would only make sense for us to talk about COVID today. Oh yeah, I'm I'm with it. Okay. So there's I feel like there's a, a whole bunch of different things to talk about with respect to the pandemic right now. One of those things is this trips waiver. You've heard of this, I presume. Yes, yes. I was one of Canada's few journalists writing about this back in December. <laughs> oh, whoa. Okay. Well, then let's tell 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 everybody what you know. Sure. Nora, expert. Yeah. Actually, you know, it was it was experts, researchers who who research intellectual property and international trade that that um, that emailed me to say or t- Twitter direct messaged me to say, "Oh my God, Nora, Canada is not playing a positive role in this. You need to write about it." And I believe that message came in October, and I saw it, and I was like, "Hey, I don't know." Oftentimes, when people give me story ideas, like it's just the timing has to be perfect for me to be able to do something with it because I'm, I mean, I'm just one person, and usually I'm in the middle of other stuff. So I was like, "Okay, I have to write about this at some point, and we'll see how this goes." And so by December, the uh, the the vaccines had starting to be approved, right? Pfizer was approved and then Moderna was approved. And the WTO meeting was coming up in December where South Africa and India had motioned to waive the intellectual property of vaccine production to allow for other countries to just know how to make these vaccines and to not find themselves caught up in the intellectual property 
uh, legal kind of quagmire that that exists. So you know when you when you have uh, technology and it's patented, um, if someone else uses your technology or creates what you've created and you've got a, a patent on it, you can actually go and 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 fight them and force them to pay you or force them to stop. And that's part of the work that the WTO does. They regulate international patents and international IP. And so India and South Africa are like, this is bullshit. Um, you know, all countries in the world will need the vaccines as fast as possible once they're available. And so we want to uh, trigger this TRIPS waiver. And Canada, as I said, was not playing a very positive role, and neither was the United States until this past week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now this week, uh, the United States has announced that they, they are supporting the calls for the TRIPS waiver, which would um, uh, you know, expand access to at least the IP uh, for this, but and usually, you know, what you would expect is that Canada would fall <laughs> directly in line with the United States because it's typically how we work on a global uh, uh, level. It's like we just kind of wait and see what the the U.S. is doing and then move from there on so many um, international issues, but not so this time around. So um, the U.S. is calling for it. Uh, Brazil now too is calling for it. Um, and Canada is still contemplating. Has he, has he, is saying that they are that they are you know uh, carefully considering, but have not um, have not made a decision. And so, this is uh, one really weird because of just you know how Canada acts in terms of geopolitics with respect to the United States. But two is like. F- unconscionable like what the fuck are you doing Mm -hmm. this is a global pandemic in which uh, people are dying all over the world who need access to this intellectual property and I mean that's just one step like so you know the intellectual property piece is one step you still have to to get the uh, facilities and um, the materials to create the vaccine it's like there's still a lot of steps that these countries are going to have to go through who will try to use this IP uh, to recreate the vaccine for their citizens and we've we've gotten to a place where of course the um, uh, international global inequalities that exist between wealthy nations and uh, exploited countries all over the world are going to um, have, an, uh, you know, the way that we come out of this pandemic uh, will be will reflect that there are going to be countries who are going to be embroiled in the pandemic for much longer uh, than some of the wealthier uh, uh, nations that exploit these other nations. And so Canada being one of these wealthier nations why, 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 why would they, would we, I guess, be attempting to to stop this really necessary life-saving information uh, from from getting out there and being replicated in the ways that it needs to be? Why? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's because Bill Gates is right, isn't he? Like, shouldn't we just do what Bill Gates tells us to do? What? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking, I just love that, you know, CBC Radio was like, we have Canada's only interview with Bill Gates on The Current. And you were like, is that supposed to be impressive? Like, what the fuck? Who cares? That guy sucks, like, massively. 
why? I think, like, first of all, let's underline that Canada is a wealthy nation. Um, Canada has a lot of Canadians in it that have direct ties to nations that are going to be absolutely put at a disadvantage by these policies. And so from the perspective of, like, the Liberal Party representing the plurality of Canadian identity uh, should obviously be fighting to get these uh, this waiver passed so that people in Canada can visit their family members all around the world. Like, it's kind of a basic thing, right? This pandemic isn't going to go away just because Canada has no pandemic anymore uh, and, like, it's still raging in different parts of the world. But why wouldn't Canada do this? I, I think that there's definitely the myth of Canada and the myth of the liberals that they're this benevolent force for global relations. And it goes back to Lester B. Pearson. I mean, let's be honest, they haven't fucking done anything noble. I'm not sure Pearson was all that noble, but that's certainly what we learned in school. And the liberals really do rest on this idea that they're the enlightened internationally conscious and focused party because when Harper gets in power, he just cuts all of our international funding and then we're just out and we're grumpy piece of shit at like, I don't know, the United Nations and no one likes us. But the liberals, like they've crafted this image of themselves and you've got Karina Gould who's all like, yay, I gave birth as a fucking MP. I'm so great. You have Mary Ng who I fucking know, (laughs) which is like such a mind fuck that she's like literally making the decision on this. But Mary used to work at Ryerson and, and, and I know her from that time. And, you know, you've got these two like women faces of the liberal government being like, oh, yeah, we're not signing this yet. And I think it's like just look at the rest of Canada's vaccine policy. Like we've purchased up to six times the number of vaccines we need for the number of Canadians that live here. Uh, and we purchase more vaccines than any country in the world. And liberals are still spinning this as if this was done for benevolent purposes. Whereas the reality is, is that the, the, the liberals are quite ruthless and they have the cover of a history of enlightened liberalism behind them that I think allows them to think that they can hide behind their actions. And I am certainly surprised. I was super surprised that Biden changed his opinion on this. I think that that's a really interesting indication as to where the United States might be heading. Uh, I also know, of course, that the United States is having a huge problem with vaccine hesitancy and refusal. Uh, And so in many states where, like, you can't walk down the street without having a vaccine, like, basically given to you, there's still, like, like overwhelming majority of people that are not getting vaccines. And so that's going to be a huge problem within the United States. But from the Canadian perspective... I don't know, Sandy, could there be another reason why why Canada is being such an international dick right now? Well, the one thing that, um, you know, I think we've we've learned over the the years of our political enlightenment is that you can always kind of follow the money to see if there is um, some sort of logic um, that has something to do with capitalism. And, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about this to know if there is absolutely some sort of financial link. But I do know that there are some vaccines being developed in Canada. And I can't help and, but wonder if uh, part of what's happening here is some, you know, uh, the liberals have are obviously, um, you know, very friendly to private corporations. And I can't help but wonder if there might be some sort of benefit to a corporation um, that, uh, uh, you know, that not having this waiver uh, is impacting uh, the decision that the liberals are not making right now. I wonder Mm. about that. I don't know for Mm -hmm. sure, again, but I do know that there are some 
some vaccines that are currently being developed. And so um, given that, you know, they're, it's late, right, to be developing vaccines, I'm sure that what some of these, uh, these companies are thinking who are developing these vaccines is that they will be going to less wealthy places, um, you know, once uh, all of the, the wealthy uh, countries have, have done what they can with their vaccine protocols. And if they wanted to benefit, if these companies wanted to benefit from that, well, in term financially, the, it would, you know, be good for them to keep their patents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so just so everybody knows, there's only like there's several vaccines that are being uh under, um, you know, that are being developed, but there's only one that has reached the final phase of uh, clinical trials, the phase three of clinical trials. And that's a vaccine that's being developed by a company called Medicago and in partnership with GlasgowSmithKline, GSK. Um, it's a Quebec company and um, <laughs> I, I like their branding. Their their branding is that <laughs> that their vaccine candidate is plant plant derived. And so I guess it's like a vegan vaccine. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. Which is like, okay, fine. Like, yeah, it's like Canada should be creating vaccines, although it shouldn't be a fucking private company working with a private company. It should be like, you know, Canadian public research, but fucking whatever. I think that that could be a reason for sure. Canada thinking of protecting its own interests, although it also just could be the liberals being super pig headed about it. And by the time you listen to this episode, they'll have already changed their opinion. It's hard to say with these guys. They're (laughs) extremely slippery. Extremely slippery, so slippery that they months ago, months ago, almost a year ago now, more than a year ago now, released a program that they said was going to help individuals uh, make it through through COVID. And hmm, someone, some podcast, some prescient podcast made the prediction that this program that they slipped through uh, was going to do more to help big business than it was uh, going to help individuals who are struggling uh, as a result of COVID. And a big reveal from, uh, I think, the Globe and Mail this week um, uh, verifies what we predicted, which is that uh, the the Canadian wage subsidy, this program that was implemented, um, and we were told would would support uh, people uh, who were struggling as a result of COVID. Well, it was basically, I think it was one of the, the biggest wealth transfers from the public purse to the uh, to the private sector, um, all under the justification of COVID. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, so this 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 investigation from the Globe and Mail. Um, it, there's four people who, are, who who wrote it, so you'll have to look it up because I don't recall all four of them. But it's, you know, it just goes through the numbers in a way that you would imagine that a private company with very, very few requirements to demonstrate that you've had negative financial impact from the pandemic, of course, is going to start like lining the pockets of very wealthy corporations. We've known this for a long time. The National Post uh, and CBC have both done analyses on this and um, and showed, and we've mentioned on this show before that like corporations like Rogers and like Bell, you know, made, they made more than $100 million off of this wage subsidy and also managed to pay out their shareholders to a massive amount. So what's interesting about this is back in July, the Globe and Mail had this uh, opinion piece written by someone who I forget. I write about this in my book, which is why I know this. But he was arguing 
that this program was going to be a massive subsidy, a massive wealth transfer from the public to the private sector. That's all this program was going to be. And when I was writing this section on the CERB and coming up to this um, analysis in the Globe and Mail saying, this is not a great program, like unless you're going to put more strings on it to make sure that companies aren't just going to take it and then pay out shareholders. That's obviously what's going to happen. And, you know, remember that this the wage subsidy, all you had to do to be eligible for the wage subsidy was to show that you had a drop in your income. And so if your income in 2019 made you a net $5 billion, let's say, and then in 2020, your net income was $4 billion, you could make the argument that you received less money than last year and that you should get the wage subsidy. Like this was how it was set up. And so none of this is surprising. And we've criticized this program before. And this is um, this is such an injustice. But what I've been most frustrated by in all of this is the reaction from the NDP saying, we what what happened this like how dare you liberals why didn't you change this program this is so bad this is an outrage as if the ndp didn't support the program it's like mm-hmm. I, i'm sorry like what school of politics says sucking and blowing is a good fucking look <laughs> Yeah. And this, you know, it's I'm so glad we get to talk about this now because it's like, you know, coming around a year later, um, for those of you who've been listening to us all this time, like, uh, you know, it really just shows what the danger was of, you know, what we were railing against at the time. Um, About a year ago, it felt like everyone wanted to just hold hands and support any politician that was doing anything. There was a lot of support um, for for nothing policies, nothing policies. And people were, you know, from all all sides of the political aisle were just supporting whoever was in power, saying, you know, we need to come together on this because, you know, it was the early days of the pandemic when everything uh, kind of felt like... Um, people wanted to work together. And I remember us, you know, talking on this podcast about how unhelpful that was, that we actually needed to take a look, a deep look at what the policies were that were being implemented. Because just because we're scared and we need something, someone to do something, not everything is useful. And some of this stuff is going to be bullshit and we need people calling them out. Well, here we are today, right? The government could have made the decision to instead of transferring all of this money uh, to the private sector. They could have made the decision to pay people to stay home. They could have made the decision to pay people to stay home. They still can make that decision. And we, we should have had oppositional voices um, saying that that was the way to go. Instead of delivering all of this money to, uh, to the private sector to be essentially you know, uh, used to line their pockets this is, you know, this is an emergency where so many people um, have have lost so much, whether it's lives or homes or um, means of survival. And we needed a year ago, we need today, um, oppositional forces uh, able to point out the bullshit in the policies that are being driven by the Liberal Party on a federal level and whoever's in power uh, on a provincial level 
um, to, to say this is crap, actually, and it's the, the principles behind it are crap, and it's not going to help people, and it's more of the same that we've been seeing from this government for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I really do just want to really focus more on the NDP for this, my last comment on this, because this whole program makes me so angry, to be quite honest. You know, I, I called out uh, Peter Julian and, you know, folks that used to work for the NDP in their lack of work to try and change the wage subsidy. And both responses were, you know, we've done what we can. We're not government. We're critical of this. But what what you wanted us to just reject this this plan, that doesn't make any sense. Then people would have fucking died or something. And it's like, OK, well, anyway, people did die. But um, on July 14th, so to celebrate Bastille Day, the NDP put out a press release calling for the wage subsidy to be um, to, for the the policies of the wage subsidy to be relaxed because the threshold of of needing to demonstrate that you've had losses of thirty percent of your income or more was too high, and that it was not flexible enough and it was arbitrary. And so the NDP actually called for companies to be able to get more money if they had not had a thirty percent loss in their wage subsidy, which was effectively the same thing that the Canadian Federation of Independent Business was calling for. They were like, you should just take businesses' word for it. If they apply for it, they should get it. <laughs> and you know, the in this in this press release, like there's no comment about this massive wealth transfer, which by the time of, of July 14th, I mean this was obvious. That was about the same time that this article was written in the in the Globe and Mail saying that of course that's what's going to be what happens. And so the NDP, like they're just the like just so anemic, like they're just so not able to, to, I don't know, they've got no like strength behind what they're trying to call for. And, you know, because I know a lot of folks in the NDP do not listen to this podcast, Tracy Ramsey, who's an MP, like basically said, this was the only program to save the working class and, and Canada's unions were behind it and Canada's NDP were behind it. And we're proud of that. And it's like, are you trying to justify the largest transfer of public money to private wealth off the backs of the working class? Are you fucking kidding me, Tracy Ramsey? Like, what school of politics did you study at? Because it does not sound like a school that one should then find themselves in the NDP having studied at. So I don't, as I say, I'm sure she doesn't listen to this and whatever, if she does, like you can direct message me on Twitter if you really want to have this conversation. But it just is very frightening to me that, um, that the NDP understands its role as being one that needs to suck and blow, defend the corporate world and pretend to defend, uh, individuals as if this program was ever intended to actually support individuals rather than just giving the money to them directly and trying to figure out a way to allow people to keep working if that was possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the other topic um, that we thought we might touch on uh, today is this kind of uh, frenzy over uh, vaccine passports. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I've been kind of frustrated listening to some of the coverage and seeing the way that people are talking about this because it really... Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things, underlying principles and, uh, you know, issues that we should be discussing when we're thinking about uh, vaccines as a passport. So one is that <sighs> this is, you know, the, the ability to travel, the ability to travel uh, and to be thinking about traveling right now like so immediately is, is a really privileged, privileged one. 
it's a really privileged one. And uh, I think, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic to today to whenever, the the reality is if you have money, <laughs> it doesn't matter what regulations <laughs> they're going to put mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on travel. If you have money, you will be able to travel. You will be able to, to cross borders. So this is not, we're not, when we're, when we're referring to these programs, we're really referring to these programs for a segment of the population uh, who might not be thinking about traveling right now. Um, the, the other thing that I think is, is devoid from the conversation that, I, that is really frustrating is just the way that our borders operate already. The borders are only real, again, for certain uh, segments of the population. And uh, w- when it comes to industry, when it comes to wealth, uh, borders uh, are less real. You know, people can can uh, travel and uh, cross borders at will, especially if they are uh, those who are trying to make money. But for certain segments of the population, other segments of the population, the borders are very, very real and uh, are, are reified because of who we are. That is all going to layer on top of any any sort of discussion that we have to um, to make the border make border policies more uh, to strengthen them or to relax them um, with respect to the pandemic. Yeah, you know, there's been a, a, a frenzy in Ontario and I mean in the rest of Canada to some extent, but it's really been focused on Ontario this past week about. Uh, Canada's borders being where COVID is coming in from or whatever, right? Doug Ford trying to shift blame from his completely shitty uh, pandemic management to blaming uh, the liberals. And, you know, we should blame the federal liberals, but it's not necessarily because travel is still possible. Um, There are, you know, 33 categories of people who are exempt from travel restrictions and quarantine, which is like kind of ridiculous because it's like, if you come in t- from another country, you should probably be quarantined. Like that, mm-hmm. that I think most people would find reasonable. And not only should you be quarantined, but to be able to make sure that it is equitable, the state needs to pay for it. And so you should be forced to be in quarantine, paid for by the state for whatever number of days, um, I don't know, experts decide is necessary based on how many tests you need to have. And so if you look at this list of who is exempt from, from, uh, from this this uh, fr- from quarantine, it's really remarkable. It's like um, anybody in the army, uh, pro athletes, <laughs> are completely exempt from quarantine, uh, and their trainers, and also um, anybody who's in Canada to repair something, to repair anything considered important. Okay, they've got kind of like a vague <laughs> list, and but you can imagine how easy it would be to say yes, our the photocopier at the um, the head office of our very important company, it's critical infrastructure. It's like, yes, we will get this man from Texas up immediately to fix your photocopier or whatever, right? And, but it's just like, it's so ridiculous because it's like, what actually cannot wait for, for, for a period of quarantine, whether that's five days or 10 days or 14 days? Like nothing can't wait. And the way that we've organized quarantine is so shit that there's actually an outbreak at one of the quarantine hotels right now in mm-hmm. Toronto. 
mm-hmm. right, or just outside Toronto, which which suggests to us that they are not adequately preparing the staff that work in these hotels to be like they're probably not all wearing hazmat suits. They're probably not be giving the the, the kinds of PPE that they need to make sure that they are protected uh, from people who are um, who are quarantining while they're there. And it's just like another example of how shit Canada's management has been on this pandemic. And so, like as Sandy says, if you have money and you can bypass all of this, if you can pay the fine, if it's not that big a deal, uh, if you have enough money to, to to say that you're a VIP, which is literally one of the fucking things in the in the quarantine list is like, yeah, you know, if you're a VIP, uh, as determined by the federal government, you can bypass quarantine, then you can. And the, the, the whole question of this vaccine passport, it will absolutely operate in the same way. It won't matter even if someone has had two vaccines, if they have less money, if they're uh, connected to a country, either by going to this country or they have a passport, maybe dual citizenship or whatever, with a country that has, quote unquote, a lot of COVID or hasn't been able to have the, the, the pandemic under control because, oh, Canada's blocking uh, the TRIPS waiver, <laughs> like... People will find themselves caught up in this. And this is where the discussion on the vaccine passports is such a joke because it's it's like it's like media pretending that class doesn't exist. And they're like, what do you think about the vaccine passports? And it's like, well, it makes sense. You know, we already have proof of having the vaccines that we have. But it doesn't it's not actually about that proof. It's all about how much money you have. And do you have enough money to be considered basically disease free? Yeah. And this is, you know, this is what's been frustrating me so much about this discussion is it's like asking the question like that, like, are you in favor of vaccine passports without having the 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 underlying understanding of how this stuff always works is is just fantasy. We can't have these discussions without knowing how uh, one, how this stuff works right now in terms of these exemptions that Nora just mentioned. But even the the way that this sort of uh, policy has has uh, interacted um, historically and even presently. I remember, you know, when I was younger and learning about um, uh, uh, another pandemic, the HIV AIDS pandemic, um, learning that, you know, if, if you wanted to um, apply for permanent residency in Canada, try to get, uh, mig- try to migrate to Canada, one of uh, the reasons why you could be denied um, was uh, HIV status. You know, this, this, this idea or, uh, you know, how to come into the country, how to, to migrate, how to cross borders. Uh, HIV status, uh, you know, was one of the ways that um, uh, Canada and a, a whole host of other countries uh, really discriminated against uh, people um, on the basis of their health status. And I think that we, we really need to uh, interrogate our, our present and our history on this. Now, I think they have at this point removed HIV as uh, one of the reasons why you could be denied but to, uh, for, for um, permanent residency. But there is still there is still a provision for, you know, if you are someone who would be deemed uh, excessive to be an excessive strain on our social social system, <laughs> essentially, which is, you know, I just I think the, the 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 way that health operates socially, we don't talk about it enough um, and we need to be having 
more sophisticated conversations around health policy, because it is not as simple as, um, are you in favor of vaccine passports? And it never has been. Um, there's, you know, we, from, from every scandal of elected politicians breaking the rules that they're imposing on everyone else to uh, people being blamed individually for not staying at home. Meanwhile, all of these workplaces are still open. Like we have to have uh, conversations that make sense and understand that there's far more than just the, the, the virus itself interacting with the policies that we are proposing and imposing on uh, on working class people, because we're not imposing these policies on everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you know, in the past uh, week, the federal appeal court um, just ruled that it upheld the safe third country agreement, which has been this agreement that a lot of critics have identified as being um, really fucked up. Um, it's it, it allows for Canada to send people back to the United States if they entered uh, from the United States seeking refugee status in Canada because the United States is a quote unquote safe third country. Now, Canada is also just rejecting people. Uh, it sounds like outright. I, I saw in the news this past week that there was a lot of criticism that that Canada has been you know, deporting people into very unsafe circumstances during this pandemic. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about safety and security, it's always under the guise of something that sounds like it makes sense. So the vaccine passport, I think, is one of those really good examples where it's like you would ask an average person on the street, what do you think about the vaccine passport? They might say yes or they might say no. But the reality is, if we are talking about safety in a true way, if we are talking about everybody's safety, the safety of somebody who might be seeking asylum in Canada, who maybe had their uh, decision rejected, but we're in a global pandemic, there would have been absolutely no deportations at all in the in, during the pandemic. Like that, mm-hmm. there just would have been a mm-hmm. stay on deportations. Except what has happened during this pandemic? Deportations have gone up. So in t- in 2020, Canada removed, and this is according to the Globe and Mail, um, as many as 12,122 people. That was 875 people more than in 2019. And the highest number since 2015, so the highest number since Justin Trudeau took office. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating that we have hit the peak of deportations under this government's tenure during a year where literally no one should have been fucking deported because of the pandemic. That to me is just like, is so damning. So damning. Yeah. And I, and you know what, you know, it it just, even, even just the hypocrisy of, of this being part of the discussion right now is just, you know, we're so far away from, from a place where we should be thinking about, you know, like opening up travel. (laughs) It's just, it's like just one of those things that just shows you how we, we live in different, um, realities if we're wealthy or if we're poor, because of course, you know, the wealthy are probably thinking about traveling. They're probably already traveling. um, And this is something that's really important for them to, to, to be able to, to move um, unabated. And so it becomes a part of the discussion because they drive public policy. Whereas, gosh, if we had, you know, controlled, if we were prioritizing health, right. And we had uh, controlled uh, travel in the way that we should have in the beginning of this pandemic, then maybe we wouldn't be here <laughs> in the way that we are right now. Um, and, you know, again, it's just 
so far removed from uh, so many people's reality um, uh, as to both where we are in the pandemic and where we are like as individuals that it's just it's really frustrating to see the conversation happening as though it is um, outside of all of this context that Nora and I are bringing to the discussion. Man, deportations, huh? Way to go, liberals. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're listening to conversations about this in the media and they're like, oh, well, we'll be able to travel again. Like, who are they talking about? Because I don't think that most Canadians are planning their fucking, you know, summer getaways outside of Canada. Right. Like there's certainly a lot of people that would love to be thinking about that. Maybe we're starting to think of inter-Canadian travel, which also should have been more restricted. Like how many workers have had to continuously fly from Atlantic Canada to Alberta to only get COVID from working in a tar sands project? Like, you know, we've had such an immature conversation about travel in this country from the start of this pandemic that the media really wants people like people, average people to think that the life of the rich is the life that we all lead. <laughs> and and so dangling this idea of travel, international travel, that isn't, um, let's say, uh, uh, that isn't related to like a family emergency, which is really the kind of travel pretty much right now that should be happening. The only kind of travel that should be happening is family emergency travel, uh, that kind of like, you know, seeing loved ones in very difficult circumstances. But it's because journalists oftentimes like project the image of the rich Mm -hmm. on average people. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves totally trapped in a completely fictional conversation that maybe one out of 10 of us is having semi-seriously, but actually one out of 50 of us is having seriously. And that's how journalists like shape the way we understand the facts, right? Like we should be really focused on a couple of things right now. We should be really focused on the fact that the vaccine rates among the oldest Canadians, so the people who've had the the longest time to get vaccinated, are really high. They're really high. There doesn't seem to be much vaccine hesitancy. Like it's in the high 80s in a lot of, well, in Quebec, I, I, I just saw something in Alberta that places it in the mid 80s. Okay, like that's really great. And as you go down the age categories, the less amount of time people have had to get vaccinated, the, the, the fewer people who've been vaccinated. So let's keep focusing on this first wave of vaccinations. Let's have a plan to actually burn through our second round of vaccinations. Wouldn't that be a good idea? And let's fucking reject any of these dream stories about fucking travel and, and Canadians going back to normal and all this kind of shit and remind politicians and journalists that you know, there's a Canadian, there's a Canada that exists for the 1% and there's a Canada that exists for the rest of us. And if journalists and politicians are playing to the 1%, we need to call that out and we need to identify that. And we need to remind people, no, no, these are the real issues. The real issues are deportations, family reunification, and the fact that there's so many fucking rich people jumping the queue right now that they alone might actually continue to make sure that COVID exists with us for the next, like, fuck, I don't know, couple of months, maybe a year. (laughs) 